Good morning. It's great to be with you all. I've never been to the uh, Longmont Church before. I have visited Westminster uh, many years ago, I think before uh, this was a congregation, and I've visited in uh, uh, Colorado Springs, but I've never been here, so this is a great pleasure. I uh, know, I've known your former pastor, Marty Wilsey, for a number of years. Marty and I served on the seminary board uh, sometime from the early 2000s. We were trying to figure that out this morning, and neither one of us could quite get the dates uh, nailed down. But so a real blessing to be here. Of course, uh, we're very familiar with HP and Carly in our presbytery, and we're very sad to lose them, but uh, certainly believe that our loss is your gain out here. And I was just thinking as I drove in the um, difference between the sort of setting when I last preached for HP down in Orlando a couple of years ago to the setting you have here, very beautiful and uh, it's really, uh, really fantastic. I do bring you greetings from Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, our congregation celebrated its 200th anniversary this fall and God has been very gracious to sustain us. I heard you recently celebrated your 20th, so you just got to do that a few more times and then you'll be there. So, you know, just slow and steady wins the race. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to look at this very familiar passage on love. Uh, I want to tell you why I'm doing this. My, our congregation has been working through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, for about the last year. And so um, this is a book, one of Paul's uh, earliest letters, I think, written around 55 A.D. This is a young church. It's an energetic church. But it's a church that's having a lot of growing pains and a lot of struggles as it tries to figure out how to serve the Lord well. And in this section of the book, uh, chapters 11 through 14, there are a number of issues Paul's dealing with directly uh, related to worship. So the way that they're approaching worship, the way they're, uh, some of the, the women apparently were acting in worship, uh, the way they approach the Lord's Supper. Um, there's a lot here about the, uh, the use of their gifts and how they're one body, yet all very diverse in their gifts and how they do that together in a faithful way. And so in the midst of that, uh, there is this chapter on love. And I just preached this a couple of weeks ago in my own congregation and thought it was helpful. And I told HP this is probably easier uh, than trying to sort through uh, Paul saying, you know, in, in chapter 14, women ought to be silent in church and never speak and some things like that, which take a little work to sort through. So we're going to focus on love and uh, how that plays into the life of the congregation. So let me read God's word and let's please give attention. This is the word of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, 
But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless his word as we think about it together this morning. There is an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along and also some cross-references on the back of that page that I'll be referring to uh, during the sermon. This passage is probably the most famous and beloved of certainly of the letter of 1 Corinthians, but uh, perhaps in the entire Bible for some people. And as you read through the commentators as they talk about this, these are some of the things they say. This is Paul's writing at its best. This is one of Paul's finest moments. This is one of the jewels of Scripture. This is a passage of singular beauty and power. This is the greatest, strongest, deepest thing Paul ever wrote. I didn't put these quotes on the back of the bulletin there. Charles Hodge said, For moral elevation, for richness and comprehensiveness, for beauty and felicity of expression, it has had the admiration of the church in all ages. So in terms of its content and also its form, it is truly a master work. And yet one of the problems as we approach this text is that most of the time we do so as sort of an isolated passage of Scripture. Uh, we, we, we take this as Paul must have sat down and his goal was to write a beautiful poem about love. And so here we have the totality of Paul's teaching on love or something like that. But that's of course, not what at all was going on. Paul was writing to a congregation that was struggling to love each other well, and particularly in the way they were using their <coughs> gifts in the worship service. That's really fascinating because that, that's what the, this part of the letter is about, the worship service. And Paul uh, decides to talk about love at that place uh, in his letter. And, and I think it's helpful for us because what Paul is sort of telling them is that all your gifts, and they were quite enamored with their gifts, you add all your gifts together and they're not as important as love. And, and the church today needs to be reminded of this. We're very much focused on doing things, on people accomplishing things, and we're busy in the church, we're busy in the community, we're busy in our families, we're trying to do, do, do. And Paul is saying here that more important than whatever we're accomplishing with our gifts is this grace of love. And so he wants us to think about that. The, the other confusion that often arises from this passage, and this is one of the reasons why you can even hear this passage read at the weddings of unbelievers, is because the entire passage never mentions God. You, you can extract this from the Bible, put it on your wall, and it's very inspirational. But you, you can't possibly understand what this is about unless you grasp that it's ultimately about God's love for us in Christ. And apart from that, you can't begin to understand what Paul's really talking about in this passage. So as we look at this together, 
Uh, my hope is, and this is on your outline, our main point, that you will see love is the essential element of your life and ministry, both now and forever. And so we need to learn to love others as an extension of Jesus' perfect love for us. And now I know you children, you have these worksheets you're working on. If you have a little space somewhere on the page, you might draw a picture for me of how you can show love to somebody else in the congregation. And think about that as we uh, talk together. Well, the first thing I want us to notice in the passage is that your gifts are meaningless if they are not exercised in love. And we see this in verses 1 to 3 of our passage. I'd actually have you go back to chapter 12, uh, verse 31, to set the context for this description of love. After talking to them in chapter 12 about their many members in one body, and they all need to work together, he says in verse 31 at the end of that chapter, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So again, he's not against the using of their gifts. In fact, it becomes clear as you read through this, he wants them to use their gifts in ways that build each other up. But he says, now I want to show you a more excellent way. That word in the original language that's translated more excellent is the word we get from which we get the English word hyperbole. And hyperbole means over-the-top exaggeration. So if you children said, I can jump so high I can jump over the church, that would be hyperbole. Well, what Paul's saying is that love is so much more important than your gifts. It's exceedingly better. It's in a completely different league when he uses that word. It's more excellent. So then he begins in chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So you have to understand one of the problems in Corinth was that they were very much impressed with the gift of speaking in tongues. It would take a long time to explain what that gift was. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not even entirely clear how that was being practiced in Corinth. But this seemed to be a gift that allowed them to speak uh, to the Lord, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, perhaps in foreign languages that they did not know. Um, but they were very much interested in practicing that gift. Paul does not forbid them from practicing that gift in the church. Again, we think some of these revelatory gifts that were needed before the New Testament was written are not necessary in our day and age today. But that's why Paul starts out here talking about speaking with the gift, uh, with, with the tongues of men or of angels. He says there, if you have what he's basically saying, this gift that you love so much, if you had it, to the degree that you were actually speaking an angelic language. So you, you had this gift as, as, as powerfully as you could have it, but you do not have love, he says. You are nothing more than a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You take a piece of a mallet of some kind, you hit it against a piece of metal, it makes a noise. That's all it is if you're exercising this gift of tongues uh, without love. Uh, children, this might be like you're just an air horn. If you know what an air horn is, you blow an air horn, it makes a loud noise. There's nothing in it. It doesn't teach us. It doesn't help us. He's saying them they're just making noise. And then he begins to go through some of the other gifts that he's actually talked about already in chapter 12. In verse 2, though I have the gift of prophecy. And so uh, they, they were, God would give revelation to them. Again, this is in the time before the New Testament has been written. And I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. 
uh, though I have all faith so that they so that I could remove mountains. So this is talking about a some a kind of supernatural faith uh, or he says that I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and I give my body to be burned. So I make great sacrifices for serving the Lord. He says, I do all these things without love. I am nothing. It profits me nothing. It doesn't matter how skilled I am. If I'm not acting in love, it's worthless. And I think a passage like this should make us pause because, again, he's saying something that runs against your nature. You and I like to hang our hats on what we do, what we've accomplished. Why should you listen to me? Why should I listen to you? Well, tell me, I'll tell you what I've done. That gives me credibility. You should listen to me because of what I've done or because of what I'm doing now. And I think this has a this really has a word for us. So if I wanted to apply this to myself, I, I, I would have to tell myself, you can serve faithfully in a pastorate for 17 years. I'm just about to my 17th year in Bloomington. And if you do not have love, it profits you nothing. Right? So you can memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But if you do not have love, that's meaningless. You can read your Bible every day for a year. But if you do not have love, that's meaningless. You can serve on the, was it the outreach committee? We're signing up recruiters. You can serve on the outreach committee, but not have love. You can serve in the nursery. You can teach Sunday school. We can go on and on. But if we do these things without love, it profits us us nothing. We are nothing. Jesus himself uh, said when he told the parable about the sheep, the goat and the sheep on the last day, and he says, Many will say to me, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And I will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's possible to be talented. It's possible to be busy. And it's possible not to be walking in love with the Lord. Now, Corinth was a real church. They loved Jesus, but they weren't loving each other as they should. So the text reminds us, your gifts are meaningless if they're not exercised in love. The second thing I want us to see in the passage is that love manifests itself in an other-oriented action, a reaching out towards others. And we see this in verses 4 to 7. So Paul's saying love is more important than your gifts. And then he goes on to say what love is like. And in verses 4 to 7, it's almost like he's describing a person. He lists 15 attributes. Here are things that love is. Here are things that love isn't. And so as we go through this list, I'm reading from the New King James translation. It may be slightly different than yours. Uh, And and realize you could spend an entire uh, year probably preaching through this part of the passage, going through every one of these uh, items one at a time. But we'll just take a few minutes. He says, love suffers long. Uh, That's sometimes translated patient. Love, Love waits. Love is patient. Love is kind. Uh, it's, gen- it's gentle. It says love does not envy. It does not parade itself. Some of your translations will say it doesn't boast. Love is not puffed up. That's also translated arrogant in some of the translations. It does not behave rudely, or some translations say in an unseemly manner. It doesn't seek its own. Uh, that could be translated it doesn't insist on its own way. 
It doesn't have to have its own way. It's not provoked, or as some translations say, it's not easily angered or irritable. It thinks no evil. And some translations translate that. It keeps no record of wrongs or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. That is to say, it doesn't delight when evil happens, but it rejoices in the truth. And then in verse 7, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that's not to say that love is gullible, but that love is optimistic, that love is hopeful, that love doesn't give up on people. It believes the best and looks forward in hope for people. And it would be well worth your time to go through this list and to see how well it describes your own life. Husbands, are you easily angered? That's, that's not love. Wives, do you keep a record of wrongs? That's not loving. Children, do you insist on having your own way? That's not love. Do you celebrate it when your rival fails? That's not love either. We could ask ourselves as a congregation, do we give up on people and just throw in the towel? That's not loving. Now recognize this is not an exhaustive list. Paul was not trying to write a definitive work on love. He has chosen these things in particular because these are the ways the Corinthian church was failing to love one another. And you can see here, even in what he does describe, that this definition of love is sort of the antithesis of the way our world looks at love. Our world talks about love as a feeling. It talks about something you fall into or you fall out of. It talks about something you give to someone who earns it. And it's sort of a response to some value you see in other people. But what Paul makes clear here is that love is an other-oriented, action-based. It's reaching out sacrificially for the good of other people, purposeful action on behalf of others. Now, one of the commentators says about this, uh, Gordon Fee, and this is in your outline, love is not an idea for Paul. It's not even a motivating factor for behavior. It is behavior. To love is to act. Anything short of action is not love at all. Uh, This made me think that uh, in some ways this is a paraphrase of what uh, the secular philosopher Forrest Gump said. Uh, Love is as love does, right, to paraphrase him, that this is what love is, as love is worked out as we give sacrificially to others. And uh, the Bible says it more clearly in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that love is manifested in the giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the problem in Corinth was that people were using their gifts not to love one another, not to build up each other, but for self-promotion. They, they were looking down on people that didn't have the gifts they, they had. They were promoting their gifts as the only or most important ones. And so it, it, what they were doing was actually counterproductive. They were causing divisions in the church as they, uh, even as they came to worship. And I think this is helpful for us again because remember the context of his letter is the church. It's not fundamentally a passage about how husbands and wives should treat each other in marriage. I'm not saying it doesn't speak to that. But it's about how the body of Christ 
is to treat one another when they're in worship, when they're living together. That a genuinely loving fellowship is a fellowship in which the members are reaching out in love to support one another, whether that's praying uh, or encouragement or assisting them when they need it or serving one another. Traditionally, the theologians talk about the three marks of the church, that the church should have the true preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. And I think a very good case could be made that love should be considered a mark of the true church. Because you can have all these things going on in a church, but if there's not love, you do not have the kind of fellowship that you need. And from everything I hear, the Lord has blessed your fellowship with this kind of love. That's a precious thing. One of the things I'll be looking for after the service is how quickly everyone runs out the door or whether people's orientation is toward interacting with each other. Now, it's funny in our church because we have some introverts. I, I know them, right? So they're going to they're gonna struggle to stay around and talk. And I will try to strategically position myself so I will trap them in the building <laughs> for a few extra minutes. But, but this is a symptom, right, of the love that the body has. One of the things that our, uh, one of our committees came up with just this last year that's been a tremendous blessing in our church is uh, an Adopt-A-Senior program. So every senior in the church that wanted to participate uh, allowed themselves to be adopted by one of the families with young children. And we have seen such unbelievable interactions that have resulted that these folks now have, in a sense, a, a, a new set of grandchildren, and the Lord has really borne fruit. There are many ways that you can love one another, but that is something so precious to the church, this other-oriented action. Thirdly, then, as we move on, although it's, these are important, your spiritual gifts are for this life only. Now, you may think that's controversial, but this is what I think he's saying in verses 8 to 12. He says in verse 8, love never fails. Right? So love perseveres, love endures, uh, lo- love is eternal. Uh, and then he compares this, again, to some of the revelatory gifts that they were very impressed with. Where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there are knowledge, it will pass away. They were obsessed with those things, but those things actually were temporary. Uh, when, when the Lord gave us the, 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 the completion of the New Testament, we have something far superior than what they had at this time in these gifts. But even with the presentation of the New Testament that we have, our knowledge is still partial. He says in verse 9, we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. Something that is coming, that is complete, and that is perfect. And uh, there's some question as to what this is, but I think if you go on in the passage, it becomes very clear that the perfection he's talking about is when we come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look down at verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. So uh, Corinth was famous for its mirrors, actually. And they made these mirrors by polishing metal uh, so that it was so shiny you could see your reflection. But it was, it was not as good as seeing somebody directly 
seeing someone face to face. It was dim. It was obscure. And, and so what he's referring to is this, the, the joy and the blessing we have of direct communication, direct communion with God. And so most commentators think when he talks about being face to face, he's actually quoting there or paraphrasing from Numbers chapter 12, verse 8. And I put a couple of verses from Numbers 12 on the back of your outline. And this is where uh, the Lord is talking about Moses. And he says, hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. That is not indirectly. And he sees the form of God. And this is what we're promised that Paul's reminding you about in 1 Corinthians 13, is that you and I will have direct communion with the Lord Jesus Christ when we go into glory. Revelation 22, verse 4 says, They shall see his face. Again, it's talking about the saints. And his name shall be on their foreheads. And when that happens, you will be perfectly known. You already are perfectly known, but you will know perfectly he says in, in verse 12, the second part, as you are perfectly known. What he's talking about is this direct knowledge that we're going to have. And, and, and the point of all of this is to help them understand the gifts that they had, even these gifts of prophecy, were temporary. They're only for the time on the earth before we are face to face with Jesus. Matthew Henry, in speaking about this, and this, this quote is in your outline also, there will be no need of tongues and prophecy and inspired knowledge in a future life because then the church will be in a state of perfection, complete both in knowledge and holiness. God will be known then clearly and in a manner by, intu and, and in a manner by intuition and as perfectly as the capacity of glorified minds will allow, not by such transient glimpses and little portions as here. Now, children, I'm going to ask you if you've ever seen this happen before. Now, if you, you saw a little child, say it's a toddler, a young child, uh, on the floor screaming and yelling and having a tantrum. I, I shudder to think, but I'm guessing most of you have seen that happen before. And if it is a toddler that's doing that, my guess is your response is, well, he shouldn't be doing that or she shouldn't be doing that. But you kind of understand it because... Uh, you've seen young children do that before, and maybe you yourself have even uh, done that before. Uh, but now let's say you see someone on the floor screaming and crying, and it's like a 10-year-old. Okay, now what are you thinking? You're thinking something's really wrong. Like, that should not happen. And you might even say to someone like that, if you knew that, <clears throat> stop acting like a baby. Stop acting like a baby. And in verse 11, this is exactly what Paul says. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That's what he's saying to the church. You're so uh, in love with your gifts and you want to display your gifts and you want everyone to see how good you are and how talented you are. And don't you understand those things are temporary. They're only to help the church before glory. Love. That's the way grown-ups think. Love is the priority. Love is eternal. 
Love is the thing that we need. So we should be thankful for teachers. But we should also not lose sight of the fact that we're going to a place where teachers aren't going to be needed. And we should be thankful for mercy ministry. But we should also be thankful that we're going to a place where mercy ministries not going to be needed. And we could go on and on. Your gifts are important, but they're for this life primarily in terms of these spiritual gifts. He goes on to say that your love is eternal. It's essential now and forever. Verse 13, now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. These things are character traits. These things are greater than all the gifts. They are, they are fruit of the Holy Spirit. Faith which connects us to Christ and brings salvation and hope that arises from having faith. But he says, the greatest of these is love. And I think what he means there is love is actually of the very essence of God. 1 John 4, 8, he who does not love does not know God for God is love. And Simon Kistemacher talking about this says, love is eternal because it is one of God's attributes. So think about that. God doesn't have faith. It's not an attribute of God to have faith. God doesn't have hope. These, these things are realities, but God is love. And again, <laughs> quoting from Matthew Henry, he says, in heaven, faith will be swallowed up in vision. Right? What is he saying? There? You don't... You don't need to have faith, right? We live by faith now, but then by sight, we'll see it with our own eyes. He says hope in fruition. Hope, you know, this optimistic attitude toward the future. Uh, we'll have the reality when we're in heaven. Matthew Henry goes on. There's no room to believe and hope when we see and enjoy. And he goes on there to say that when we come to glory... And you are perfected if you are a Christian. You're going to be able to truly love God for the first time in your life. To really love God. To see God as he really is and to love him. And you're also going to see each other for the first time with perfected vision. And you're going to see the glory of God in each other in a way that you've never experienced. This is the perfection that we're promised. And this is why love, love is greater than all these other things. Because in glory, our love for God will be perfected. That love will overflow to other people. And what Paul's saying is you have an opportunity now to experience just a little taste of that as you love one another and serve one another in the congregation. And we really need to do a better job valuing love. I mean, think about it. Um, you're having a conversation about folks at the church. You say, oh, that was a great Sunday school lesson. Man, that, that, that guy is a great teacher. I wish I could teach like that. How often do we have the conversation, that person loves so well. I wish I could love like that person. We, we, we tend to elevate the gifts. And you might be here this morning thinking, like, I wish, I really do wish I could teach. And I'm, it's, I feel like I, I'm not able to serve like I could. And Paul's not against us working on improving our gifts, whatever they are. 
What he's saying is all of us can love. Every one of you can love. And, and that's what he says is more important. What an encouragement to us. Even as we come to the end of our lives and our health may prevent us from doing what we'd like to do, we can still love. We can pray for each other. We can encourage each other. We can love. Your gifts are for this life, but love is essential now and forever. So finally, then, love love others as an extension of Jesus' perfect love for you. And there's something else we need to understand about this passage. It's, it's not just Paul telling you, hey, try harder to love each other. Would you do that? There's something else going on here. It has to do with the Greek word that Paul uses for love throughout this passage. And uh, I, I do this at my own peril because whenever you start talking about Greek words, people just, I know, eyes roll back. But it's the word agape. And I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard that word before. What, what we need to realize is that in ancient Greek, there were eight different words for love that were commonly used. The, the love of a, a parent for a child, there was a word for that. The love that's between friends. Romantic love, the love of one's country. Uh, love for a favorite activity or place. And so agape was one of many choices uh, of words that were used for love. Agape means sort of sacrificial love. Love that is unmerited. And what happened is the New Testament writers took that word, which was not used very often in the Greek language, they took that obscure word and they made it the, the love that's described in the Bible. So the New Testament uses it 116 times. Paul uses it 75 times in his writing. This is so associated with the Christian church that historically it was called Christian love. Because it really wasn't used very often in the culture. Leon Morris, speaking about this, says, it is, it is love for the utterly unworthy. A love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought for whether they are worthy or not. What he's talking about there is the same as mentioned in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the self-sacrificial, other-oriented, deliberate, action-based love that Christ has shown us. And it's a uniquely divine love. This is the love that Christ manifested when he left heaven and came to earth to live and to die for his people. It's the love Christ manifested when he said on the cross, Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. And Jesus embodied this type of love perfectly every second that he was on the earth. And if you look back through verses 4 to 7 at this text, you, of this text, you realize Jesus is the one who is long-suffering and kind. He is the one who never envied or boasted. He is the one who is not proud or rude or self-seeking or irritable. He never celebrated evil. He only celebrated the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus is the one who never fails. And what Paul's giving us here is a beautiful description of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love 
that he showed his people. And it's not a love you and I are capable of in our own strength. We cannot do that. But the word encourages us. 1 John 4, verses 10 and 11. In this is love. And he's, he's using the word agape here. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You and I could memorize this entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. I hope some of you children are working on that. That's a great passage to memorize. But you and I will never be able to live this way unless Jesus Christ comes into our hearts, forgives us of our sins, gives us that love, and works in our lives so that we can begin to love others in that way. Jesus, the one who loved you before the foundation of the world. Jesus, the one who puts you in a church so that you can love one another. Jesus, who continues to give you his spirit so that you're enabled to use your gifts, but in such a way that you love and build up one another. This is the blessing of being in the church. This love is for the church. And you need to recognize what a precious thing that is. The world doesn't have this. The world desperately needs this. And you can have a profound impact on your community if you love and love one another well and seek to love those outside. When my wife and I moved to Bloomington 30 years ago, the church had been in a period of decline over decades. And it was probably about a fourth of the size, a third of the size that it had been when it had been very healthy. But one thing was there, we noticed. There was love amongst the body. And they'd have a number of difficulties they'd had to go through. And they kept loving one another well. And they believed God's promises. And they reached out to their community. And in the time, that the 30 years that, that I've been there, that church is almost four times the size it was then. Mostly just because the people kept loving one another. And I think that's a great encouragement to us. Paul says no matter what skills you have, none of it matters unless you love. And if you love, God will build you up and will bless you. So recognize love's the essential thing in your life and in your ministry now and forever. Love one another as an extension of Jesus' perfect love for you. And let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the gift of our Savior Jesus Christ, in the love that you have displayed. It's, it's, it's not a natural love on the earth. It is a heavenly love. And we thank you that Christ has come and loved us perfectly so that we could be redeemed and saved and we could be brought into the fellowship of, of love that is your church. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of being in the body of Christ. And I pray that you would help these saints here in Longmont as they seek to serve you, as they start their second 20 years, uh, of which we hope there will be many, many more. We pray that you would bless them and enable them to love each other and to love those that are even outside the body and that you would be pleased to bring more people into their fellowship to enjoy this love that is a heavenly love from you. And we pray that you would help us, even in the coming weeks, uh, to think about how we can love one another 
and how we can seek to build up our body in Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.